Okay, so let's uh, look in our Bibles, Romans chapter 11, verses uh, 1 to 12, and you'll find it in the uh, church Bible right in front of you. What page number is that? Anyone got the page number, Romans chapter 11? I'm sorry? 946, thank you, thank you. I didn't look it up beforehand. Confessing my sins this morning. Romans chapter 11 and uh, verses 1 through to 12. So then let's uh, hear the glories of God's word. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And don't you know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is God's word. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We all love stories, Star Wars, fairy tales, once upon a time, all the stories of the Bible. And in fact, in this passage, there's a story arc behind it all. Now, you and I may at times feel too sophisticated and worldly wise to expect all our stories to be fairy tales and end with they lived happily ever after. But we still tell ourselves stories and read stories because as we do that, we place the narrative of our individual lives in the context of a bigger story, and that helps us at times to make sense of our own pieces in the bigger puzzle. So uh, when you have questions like this, uh, where is my life going? What is my career? Is it uh, on the right kind of track? How will it all turn out? Will the story end well? Perhaps you're in a season of challenge. Will it lead to a new day of flourishing? Maybe you're in a season of flourishing. Will it lead to a new day of challenge? What is the story? Is it all the fault in our stars, as the movie of that name put it, or as the original quotation that inspired that movie said, is the fault in ourselves? Uh, societies have stories, you see. It's not just the books or the novels or the movies. It, it, societies have stories. The American dream is, in a sense, a story. 
If you work hard, you play by the rules, then in this great land of opportunity, uh, there's a promise of doing well by doing good. And of course, the Bible is a story all the way through from beginning to end, a story of hope for anyone who believes. But if we are honest with each other, and one of the most important parts of Bible teaching and of church is to be frank, if we are honest with each other, we do at times, whether you are a seeker here this morning or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, we do at times find it hard to accept that the biblical story is really going to end well, especially when our own lives are under pressure. I mean, at least I, I, I experience that. Uh, you sing or read about the glories of the immutable wonders, but uh, they can lose their thrill all too easily when I stub my toe. The sovereignty of God can feel questionable when the oven needs uh, fixing. Uh, my acceptance in the beloved um, can seem unlikely when someone tells me they don't like But you see, this morning, the Bible is not just referring to this big story, which there is throughout the Bible, a story of hope, but it is actually showing us it is not a too-good-to-be-true story, for it faces the questions that we all have about this biblical dream. In fact, uh, today the Bible is really raising three questions, and it's giving one answer uh, to each of them. Three questions, one answer. The first question is raised and discussed in verses 1 through 6, and I've called that question, has God rejected me? You may feel that sometimes. It is easy to uh, think that when bad things happen to you, God has rejected you. Paul puts it like this in verse 1, I ask then, it's a question, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. So the first question, I put it as, has God rejected me or us or his people? And the answer is no, by no means. Well, why? Given all that was happening to Israel, given all that is happening in our world today, is it really true that God has not rejected his people, his Christian people, his people Israel? Well, he has uh, some... Um, elements of the story to prove that the answer is no. Paul's own life story, verse 1, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul, one of God's people, persecuted the followers of Jesus, and now Paul himself follows Jesus. And so, of course, the thinking is this, if anyone ever says to you, that what you did was unforgivable. Or that such a situation is incurable. Ask them to think about the story of Paul. Oh, God is an expert at redeeming the irredeemable, for if he wasn't, none of us would be here. Don't think just because at College Church we scrub up so nice and proper on Sunday morning that we're not all a mess. We are. Adultery. Well, haven't you heard the story? David was an adulterer. 
And then the most famous king of God's people. Murder? Haven't you heard the story? Moses was a murderer. And then the most famous prophet of God's people. Or let us uh, pick the um, ultimate outsider today. Religious terrorist. Well, I suppose you could say that Paul was a religious terrorist. And then became the most famous apostle of God's people. My friends, I think God can cope with your sins. But you say, well, I get that in theory. But it still feels like God's people have been rejected. It still feels like I am rejected. Well, then, says Paul, think about Elijah and his story, verses 2 to 4. You know that story, don't you, Paul says? He defeated the false prophets of the pagan god Baal and then immediately afterwards sank into depression and said to God, I'm the only one left. (laughs) How often you and I feel like that. I've even heard sermons that uh, give what I would call an Elijah message. Point one, Lord... There's hardly anyone who's godly anymore in this whole country. Point two, all hope is gone. There's no third point. Amen. (laughs) Don't you hear this kind of stuff all the time in Christian circles these days? Uh, Oh, the millennials. What are we going to do about them? You should just hear what the boomers said about my generation, Generation X. It was not polite, I can tell you, and for good reason. Kurt Cobain's Nirvana did not seem the right Petri dish to grow spiritual leaders for the future. That's for sure. Or think further back to that ancient philosopher Aristotle, born 400 years or so uh, B.C. Supposedly, he once said, when I look at the next generation, I despair for the future of the world. Yeah, many a pastor preaches an Elijah sermon to himself on Monday morning. I'm all alone. Look, if you ever feel like that about your ministry, your small group, your adult community, the Wednesday night prayer meeting, you gather out there and there's just 30 or so people there. You think, no one else is praying. We're all alone. If you ever feel like that about the culture these days, oh, God has rejected us all. Or you'll feel that your workplace is not as friendly to Christian values as it once was. Or you'll read the news, the Christian headlines, that just this last week, the Satanist temple has set up a headquarters in New England, Salem, Massachusetts. Or you fear that public bathrooms are no longer safe for your daughters. God has rejected us. Remember the story of Elijah. You do not know, you cannot see Elijah, the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Don't tell me that I don't know what I'm doing, God says to Elijah. There actually is a very simple remedy to this kind of spiritual depression, and it is called friendship. That's what God told Elijah 
His three points of his sermon were rest, eat, find a friend. Elisha. Now, I'm not talking about moaning about all your frustrations to anyone who will listen. Gossip is poison that sickens churches. My friends, there is a difference between redemptive vulnerability and firing off nasty emails. For the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. No, I am talking about friendship, Christian friendship, with a trusted couple of brothers or sisters with whom you can share your life. Someone once said this, alone we feel invisible, but together we are invincible. But still, you say, well, that's all very well, but what about the theology of all this? Well, I'll get to that, says Paul, verses 5 and 6. So, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So, in other words, Paul is saying this, grace and works cannot sink together to save anyone, for they are Contrary principles like oil and water, they do not mix in the elixir of salvation. One comes first, grace, then comes the other, like a seed before fruit. Oh, there is a remnant, not a negative, backward-looking group fixated on how great the 1950s were. But a grace-filled, forward-looking, special force of spiritual ninja warriors. A seed out of which will come a new spurt of life. A large tree, like a new foundation for a new outpost of the kingdom. A sort of space colonization of the new movement that God is starting in the new frontiers. Just this week, it's credibly reported that a Southeast Asian man was miraculously restored after death, or at least near death, where missionaries prayed for him in a remote village. God has not rejected you, Elijah. Well, the second question follows from the first. For this second question is, is why? You'll find that question traced out in verses 7 to 10. As you scan your eye down there, you'll see it's following on from the previous one. If the answer to that question, has God rejected his people, is no, then the next question is, what then? In verse 7, or as we would say, why? Why me? You see, here you are in church. Here you are in Wheaton. You are surrounded by innumerable privileges. When I uh, lived in a third world country, I remember coming back and going into a grocery store uh, again for the first time. The choice. 50 different kinds of breakfast cereal, of all things. Eight hours before, I walked into a store and seen empty shelf after empty shelf. I stood in line at midnight, waiting in vain for the bread shop to have enough flour to bake any bread at all? If you understand that God has not rejected you, that instead you are surrounded by so many spiritual blessings, loving parents, loving children, a Bible teacher who is not quite as boring as he could be, a, a church that is healthy, 
Elders who love you and spend an evening just praying for you. Deacons and deaconesses who serve in the background and never ask for applause. A small group that picks up laundry for you. People who bring you meal after meal until you gain 15 pounds when you go through your bereavement. And and you look around and you think, how could it be? And you think, why me? And not someone else? And not these others? You're no longer lost. You're no longer going to stomp off into the wilderness and build a nice castle singing, let it go, let it go. But you are now lost in amazement. Could it be that a basket case like me is loved like this? Why me? Not these others? You move from Elijah-like depression to an almost survivor guilt-like hesitation. Now, the Bible's answer here is difficult to accept, I'll warrant you that, but it's not hard to understand. The story of Isaiah, which is quoted in verse 8 and referenced there, and the story of David, again referenced in verse 9, shows us that among those who hang around with God's people are always some not yet loving God. They come to church for the social network, not for Jesus. Even David had enemies, as did Isaiah. There are those who are, verse 7, hardened. It's a little irreverent, but one time when I was having trouble with some people who were pretending to be followers of God, but who themselves have probably not yet really experienced the love of Christ. I was given a cartoon uh, by a friend. It was one of those Gary Larson Far Side cartoons. And uh, this one was of Noah standing on his ark and looking at all the animals waiting to go inside. And uh, Noah announced uh, the following uh, Listen up, we're going to do this alphabetically. And there was a little thought bubble came out of the head of the two zebras. And it was an unprintable protest. Not reverent. Not nice. But some people just won't get it, however much you try. It's not very nice to say that some people are hardened, but it is true. David knew it. Isaiah knew it. All that is gold does not glitter, and everything that glitters is not always gold. Now, my dear friends, please note and listen. The Bible elsewhere teaches that those who are rejected themselves reject. And even the hardened can turn back if they want, like we just saw from Paul. C.S. Lewis described how the key to hell is on the inside, that is, we cast ourselves into hell, and it is certainly true that that human responsibility is also in the Bible. 
And Jesus himself said this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. He appealed to our human will, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. In fact, Paul was earlier over and over again said the same thing. Romans chapter 10, just a bit earlier, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, no, the Bible consistently affirms both these truths as true. It refuses to get mired into philosophical squabbles and intellectual problems and addresses the reality from both angles, sometimes at once, sometimes even in the same verse. For instance, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, your activity, for It is God who is at work in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. God's activity. Same verse. Now, here the Bible is emphasizing the sovereignty side of this balance. But throughout the Bible as a whole, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are like twin train tracks that run parallel over the horizon of eternity and must never cross or contradict each other. If we can rest in the mysterious truth of the Trinity, that God is one and three persons at the same time, then by comparison and similarity, if not identity, can we not also rest in God's complete sovereignty and our real human responsibility at the same time. You know, my friends, it is a sweet place to rest when you realize that the boundary lines of your life have fallen for you in pleasant places. So don't then guilt trip yourself about being privileged or elect and wonder, why me? What then? And therefore, in our own oversensitive conscience, hesitate. Not make the most of our elect privileges to serve others. You, you don't bury the talent. You invest it. You multiply it. God has chosen to give you great opportunities through his mercy for a reason. That you might use those gifts, your brain, your money, your time, your love, your personality, your charm, your network and social skills, all for him. So you don't sit in depression like Elijah, passive-aggressively moaning about how you're all alone. But also don't beat yourself up in a sort of survivor's guilt when people oppose you. No, listen to how even the great David and Isaiah could not win everyone to their way of thinking. So when you see others who have less than you, especially from the perspective of a privileged place like this holy hill, Wheaton, don't think that this bubble of concentrated Christianity here is a bad thing and hesitate Do little to magnify the bright light that here shines, for if you fan it into flame, 
It may well reach those around the world who do have less than you. Even some who right now don't get it. If you have special opportunities, the right thing is to make special use of them. Give as you have been given. And so we come to the third and final question, which is actually the most relevant of them all. What kind of God is this? Look down with me in your Bibles at verses 11 and 12. And as you do, you can see uh, this question also follows on from the previous uh, ones. If God has not rejected you, and if God is sovereign in your salvation... Then the final question is about God himself, his ultimate purpose, the end of the story. Does it all end happily ever after? What kind of story are we in? Or as it says here in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Was God's purpose all along for Israel to fall? Is this story a tragedy, a film noir? Has God always intended to shut these people out of the pearly gates of heaven? And of course, if that is true, then we naturally ask ourselves, what kind of God is this? A lot of people, you know, do think that that kind of God is the kind of God we believe in. They think we believe that God is malevolent, borderline evil, out to get you and throw people into hell, has a plan to victimize everyone apart from the very special elite, that God plays favorites with a few and casts the rest behind his back. But the Bible says, verse 11, By no means. No way. Now, we will develop this more next week, for it's really explained in the next part of Romans chapter 11. But today, we can at least see here the end of the story in a sort of preview. So, if their trespass, verse 12, that is their failure to accept Christ means riches for the Gentiles, that is the gospel going to all nations, the nations, how much more will their full inclusion, as they are jealously stirred up to seek the same blessing the Gentiles have? By the way, it means that grace is something that when you see it, you want it. How much more then will this not lead to what I've called fullness of riches? Now, of course, we tend immediately in in Christian circles to think that such spiritual riches means heaven, and for sure in heaven there will be fullness of riches. But actually here, the Bible is not just talking about having a sweet time in the by and by. No, it is skipping ahead a little bit in the story of God's redemption to show us a preview 
of how it will all end well as all nations, Jew and Gentile, are fully included. So the riches of his glory is God's love and mercy in redeeming all peoples into personal relationship with him. That is the fullness of riches. And that means that our God is magnificent, not malevolent, triumphant, not tragic, not full of bile, but beautiful in his redeeming love. And so it is riches to know him, joy to enjoy him, love to love him, purpose to serve him in the story of our own lives today. It means that you can give your life for something that will last forever and for someone who it is riches to know. Of course, it is at times hard to believe that our individual stories will end well. But every now and then we do get a glimpse. I was caught, uh, uh, caught my attention in the news this week that a Canadian missionary uh, couple has uh, just been released from being held in prison for two years in China. That's a good end to that part of their story. Uh, perhaps um, you feel you married the wrong person. Perhaps you feel trapped, almost in prison in your career. You wonder how the story can ever get any better. Um, being a father gives me a new um, perspective on life in all sorts of ways. Our children are growing up as is the natural course of events. And uh, one of our children, um, I'm actually teaching how to drive. first few times out, it's hard to believe that uh, they will ever be driving down the highway. And if you can believe it, you're kind of scared. But then little by little, you start to see it will happen. It happened with me. When you know the end from the beginning, the next step in the story becomes an adventure. And God has a story that ends in fullness of riches for you, if you follow him, for all nations. Now, you're in the midst of this story now, and I get that, and maybe you feel like you're walking through the darkness of Mordor, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel, it's not an oncoming train. There's a story that has been told that ends well and that means that you can glory in the riches of the storyteller today. 
Well, I said there were three questions and one answer. The three questions are, has God rejected you? If not, why not? And why not others? Why me? And then the third question, if God is sovereign in salvation, what kind of God is this? And the one answer to all three questions is really one word, grace. Jesus told a similar story. In that story, a rebel goes off to a far country. He spends his father's money. He comes back intending to beg for forgiveness and serve just as a hired hand. But actually, the father runs out to him. He hugs him, and he throws the biggest party of his life. Meanwhile, the older brother, who'd always been a good boy, played by the rules, was jealous God's radical grace to the younger brother was intended to stir up the older brother to realize that he was jealous. That he too, though outwardly much nicer and more proper, morally upright, he too needed radical grace. Which character are you in the story? Perhaps you are the uh, younger brother. And this morning you're just reveling in the marvel of grace to you a sinner. Could it be, your heart sings, could it be that such a one as me is accepted and forgiven and loved by the Father's love? I'm just amazed at all this. And if someone asked you what was the application of the sermon, you'd forget all about the application to community for the Elijahs or to generous serving for those feeling hesitant about how privileged they are. And you would just look out with teary eyes through a veil of joy and smile. So happy are you in grace. Perhaps you are the older brother. Grace bothers you, frankly. What right does God have to work so powerfully among some and leave me out in the cold? Don't I get to do something fun too? Why do I get cancer and she or he doesn't? Why does he get all the attention and I don't? Where is my, where's my party? Could it be that God is stirring up the jealousy in your heart to cause you to receive grace Two. Perhaps surprisingly for the first time this morning or into a new release of spiritual power right here in church. And when that happens, when older and younger brother and sister unite in grace, when we are not all for progress as it doesn't lead to change, as long as it doesn't lead to any change, When we have grace for each other and glory in Christ, not our ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, black or white, not our culture or our generation, but preferring each other, running ahead to make church what will most benefit the other person instead of 
ourselves. With a vision for reaching the world for Christ, changing the course of Western civilization, all nations for the glory of God. Then there will be fullness of riches. As that gospel story of full inclusion is told in Wheaton, Chicagoland, and to the ends of the world. Let's pray together. Which character are you in the story? Perhaps uh, you do need to confess jealousy this morning. Perhaps uh, you're just waiting for the moment when we sing the last hymn and you just want to bellow out, great is thy faithfulness. You're the younger brother. Would you have patience with the older brothers? Perhaps you need to ask God for a friend. Someone you can trust and rely upon and do life together with. Perhaps um, your bank account is so full of money and your spiritual heritage so rich in that regard as well. You sense the responsibility to make the most of it. But frankly, every day you need wisdom to know how. Would you use this moment to ask God for wisdom to fan into flame the gift that God has chosen to give you to not bury the talent but multiply it over and over again. Our Lord God, you are faithful. Your covenant love, your mercy does not fail. We pray, Lord, that you would um, unite uh, your people in grace, black and white, such a prevalent need in this country, Jew and Gentile around the world. Older and younger brother, may we uh, here at College Church increasingly experience the fullness of the riches of who you are as God and your fatherly love for us all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.